Welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. The Metropolitan Man, written by Alexander Wales, read by Eniash Brodsky. Second half of Chapter 8, Peeling Back the Veil. The next day, Lois Lane picked up the piece of paper from Lex Luthor's desk as he said unimportant things for the benefit of Superman. I'm not saying that I believe you, Miss Lane, but if you think that Superman is losing his faith in us, then that's something that needs to be discussed, and I can only hope that if he finds out, he'll understand that the discussion couldn't happen in front of him, as it were. You have more exposure to the man than anyone on the planet, so far as I know. You're the only one he's really talked to. If you have concerns, I need to hear them, no matter how outlandish. There's much to the science of Superman. His X-ray vision, for example, doesn't use actual X-rays. The current best theory is that there's an exotic type of particle which is yet undetectable to us. It permeates the planet, with lead atoms being the only thing that can stop it, with reasons that possibly relate to its atomic weight, electron density, or some other property. But there's so much unknown, as with much about Superman. I've been working on it for a year, and I still don't have the faintest understanding of how his hearing works. I want to make it clear that much of what I say about the science of Superman is on the cutting edge, and not to be taken as gospel. I've done the liberty of typing up a very rough draft, and would be pleased if you could take a look." He handed her a blank sheet of paper and a pencil. She was about to object that if they really wanted to be secretive, she'd need to leave his study with some actual papers but he pulled out a number of typewritten pages, already marked up with a few corrections and notes, and set it beside her. She began to give her account. From time to time, she would ask Lex an inane question to keep up appearances, and he would respond with inane answers. To Superman, it would sound like they were simply working on a book together. She wasn't sure whether she could trust Luther, but he was by far the most capable man in the city and she hoped that the worst he would do would be to burn her notes and refuse to see her without letting Superman know what she thought. She tried to use the strongest, most persuasive language she could, and hoped that Superman would never learn what she really thought of him. Still, she left some things out. She didn't mention the possessive way that Superman had touched her when he'd picked her up and flown her through the air. She'd interacted with Superman on a number of occasions, and he always seemed so familiar with her. As far as she knew, she was his only friend, but she was also something more to him. She could feel his eyes on her when she undressed sometimes. She could feel him staring at her while she tried to sleep. With every conversation she had, she imagined Superman listening in. This feeling had grown in intensity since their last meeting. She hoped it was just paranoia on her part. But either way, Lex Luthor didn't need to know. The picture Lois Lane printed was a grim one. He was now reasonably confident that she knew nothing of Superman's alter ego. Her account of Superman was vivid and unflinching. He can hear everything that's happening in the world, and it's driving him to despair. 
I think he can shut down his hearing and tune it all out, but that's almost worse in a way, because he still knows all the pain and suffering that's happening, and turning away from it doesn't make it disappear. He sounded like a martyr to me, forcing himself to bear witness, not just to the evils, but to the vast but simple indifference of the world. Yet that was very different from the picture that Lex had been forming. Superman spent time as Clark Kent, which implied a certain apathy about suffering. What did Superman get from maintaining the Clark Kent persona? From what Lex's various sources could tell him, Clark Kent didn't seem to take very many pleasures from life. He didn't drink or smoke, and he had no romantic relationships to speak of. It seemed unbearably dull to Lex. Even in his work life, Clark Kent was only second best, and he didn't seem to leverage the full force of his powers. The first possibility was that everything Superman had said to Lois was a ruse. Superman was an abject liar. He'd already proven as much by spending an entire year pretending at being someone he was not. It was possible that he was manipulating Lois Lane towards some end, though Lex could only make the vaguest guess as to what end. Superman should have no need for a reporter, since he already was one. If it was manipulation, Lex suspected that it was in pursuit of inflicting some mental and emotional harm, but it was also possible that he had some delusions about Lois. Lois hadn't mentioned Clark at all, and Lex hadn't thought it prudent to bring him up. The second possibility had taken some time to see. Lex had been under the assumption that the persona of Clark Kent had been invented as a cover for Superman, but it was distinctly possible that Superman was a cover for Clark Kent. The solidity of his background information suggested as much. Lex had told Mercy that Clark was a mockery of humanity, but perhaps the outward appearance of Clark Kent matched his inner feelings. Lex Luthor could almost imagine Clark Kent as a simple man who wanted nothing from life but to be left alone, burdened by powers that he didn't understand or desire, donning a costume and flying through the air because the guilt of sitting at his desk simply became too much sometimes. It was almost sad, until you remembered that he was the most dangerous man on the planet. If there were answers, they would be found in Smallville. Joseph and Loretta Green bought one of the town's two general stores. They moved into a small house on Cherry Street and quickly made friends throughout the community. Joseph was always ready to ask about the history of Smallville, a town which he seemed to have adopted as his own, and Loretta was relentlessly social. They attended church every Sunday at the Zion Lutheran Church. Though they didn't have any children, they often spoke of it as an eventuality. If you could see through Loretta's clothes, you would have seen a scar running at a diagonal from the side of her left breast to just above her navel. If you could see straight through Joseph's dress shirt, you would find three puckered marks that were unmistakably bullet wounds. Joseph and Loretta had stories ready in case anyone ever saw and asked. Those were the only marks of their former lives. As it turned out, Clark Kent was somewhat famous in Smallville. His name had come up on the very first day that Loretta and Joseph had come to town, when the previous owner of the general store had told them that they should carry the Daily Planet, even though it would be at least two days old by the time it arrived. Though he hadn't been especially popular or well-known growing up, Clark Kent had become the nearest thing that Smallville had to a celebrity, and the people of Smallville often talked about what Clark was up to in the big city. 
Every few days, Loretta would write a letter to her family back in Gotham City. She wrote an enormous amount, even when there wasn't much to say, and often included some of Joseph's historical research about the town and its residents. Joseph took to Smallville like a fish to water, and some days could be seen two doors down talking to the small group of men that worked at the Smallville Ledger, a once-weekly newspaper that served as the main source of news for the county. Anything and everything of interest he learned there went into the letters to Gotham. From time to time, a letter would come back. The player piano had effectively died out in 1929 with the stock market crash and few of the things were produced anymore since radio had effectively taken its place. Player pianos worked through pneumatic action to play music, and the different songs were recorded on sheets of perforated paper. Joseph and Loretta had brought a player piano with them when they moved in, and a very careful observer might note that it routinely seemed to break down just after one of these letters from Gotham City came in. Joseph would take the perforated sheet of paper with the music out of the machine and go to work repairing whatever was wrong, and Loretta would lay the sheet on top of the letter. The typewritten letter would perfectly line up with the perforated sheet music, revealing a scattering of letters that formed a message. Those brief seconds were the only time that someone watching through the walls from hundreds of miles away would know that they were something more than just rural shopkeepers. Do you think we'll ever know? asked Loretta one night, over dinner. No, said Joseph. How much longer, do you think? No idea. He leaned over and kissed her on the cheek. Let's not talk about these things. Five thousand dollars were deposited into a Kansas City bank account every week for each of them, courtesy of a trust that had been set up according to the will of Joseph's fictitious uncle. They had no idea who their employer was, only that he was fanatically paranoid. Joseph and Loretta weren't their real names, but all the proper records were in place if anyone went looking. If asked about the money, they would confess that they simply liked the small and quiet life of a small town and didn't want to complicate things. Herschel Whitman sat on the veranda of the governor's mansion. It was early in March and too cold for the veranda, but he didn't like to be inside the house anymore. He'd have never thought that so soon after winning an election, he would feel like leaving his office. People had offered their condolences and paid their respects, but it had been more than a month now, and mostly all that was left were awkward glances and sad looks. June was shut up in her room, and Robert was buried in the Oakwood Cemetery. Superman landed in the yard and started walking towards the house. Herschel tried not to react. Early on, he'd wanted to yell at Superman for failing to save his children. He had yelled, in fact. Late at night, after June had been brought back and Robert hadn't, when Herschel couldn't sleep, he would walk a mile or so from the mansion and scream at the sky. He didn't know if Superman had listened or if Superman cared. He felt somewhat guilty about that now. If it hadn't been for Superman, June might not have come back at all. Superman, said Herschel. His voice caught. Governor Whitman, I never said how sorry I was. No, you didn't. I came here to ask a favor. Thirteen minutes ago, Francis Pasqua spoke with his lawyer about getting immunity. He named William Calhoun as the man who gave the orders. Immunity. 
You want me to give him immunity in exchange for testimony? No. I need to know what June heard them talk about. And if it's enough, I need her to testify. Just kill him. Just fly in and kill him. No one would stop you. No one could stop you. Hell, use a gun and no one would even think of you. There are a dozen people with cause to kill Willie Calhoun. You want my daughter to take the stand against him? To say that his name was thrown around by those men? Calhoun would have the right to face his accuser, and that means cross-examination. No, I won't put her through that. He needs to be brought to justice. Do you know why it didn't happen in the last trial? He'd had two whiskeys before Superman had shown up and swayed slightly as he stood. It's because you let him. The criminals don't care about you. They know you won't hurt them, and they know how to hide from you. Ronald Oakes. That was the name of the man driving my children, and everyone forgets about him. They slit his throat because they knew that if they didn't, he would call for you. You're not making them stop. You're just making them adapt. Crime has dropped nearly 90% since I've come to Metropolis. You can ask the chief of police. I know you're angry, but if we don't have the rule of law, we don't have anything. Herschel crumpled into his chair. Arguing was no use. <sighs> if June agrees, if June agrees to talk, and she knows enough to convince the district attorney, and the jury listens to her, and then they say he's not guilty, if all that happens, you'll just let him go? No, said Superman. No? No. In 1911, a baby boy was left in the hallway of a tenement in Metropolis. He was taken to the Metropolis Foundling Hospital, and from there became part of the Orphan Train Program. In Metropolis, the abandonment of children was a continual problem, while in the Midwest there was a continual shortage of labor. The inventive solution to these twin problems was for the children and babies to be delivered to the heartland of America by railway. At every stop, the children would be taken out and displayed before the gathered crowd, sometimes having their muscles felt and teeth checked. Some would be selected for indentured servitude and possibly adoption, while others would be put back on the train and sent to the next stop. When the orphan train stopped in Oskaloosa, the foundling, Clark, was selected by Martha and Jonathan Kent. They adopted him a few years later. So far as Lex could tell, that was the official story that was believed by the residents of Smallville. Though the orphan trains had fallen out of favor, the Metropolis Foundling Hospital was still standing. As Lex Luthor was funding five different orphanages in Metropolis, it wasn't terribly hard for him to get the records from the Foundling Hospital. And more importantly, it wouldn't look terribly suspicious, especially when it was known that Lex Luthor was looking to expand his charitable giving. It had taken only a day of looking through the records to see that they contained no mention of a boy named Clark leaving the train at Oskaloosa, and no record of the Kents as sponsors for a child. This in itself was nothing too out of the ordinary. Lex had found that few people took record-keeping seriously. Ownership of the records changed, people developed new formats, and sometimes entire years' worth of data were destroyed by insects, acids in the paper, or an excess of humidity. Yet, it still felt suspicious to Lex. 
If you were trying to hide someone's parentage, you couldn't do much better than the orphan trains. Clark Kent had the perfect excuse for not having a birth certificate. According to the reports he received from his two agents, Martha Kent owned a farmhouse outside of town, which she shared with a live-in farmhand named Elias Clayton. His agents had spoken to her and remarked only that she was a nice woman who went to church every Sunday and spent most of her time on the farm. Jonathan Kent had died a year before Clark had come to Metropolis, and if that was a deception, someone had at least given him a gravestone. Clark Kent had grown up in Smallville. There were dozens of people who could recall him as a boy. His worn and faded initials were carved into desktops and trees. The evidence of his existence was so utterly convincing that it couldn't be denied. There were aberrant incidents in and around Smallville that suggested the powers characteristic of Superman extending back to the time that Clark Kent was 11 years old. Superman had not actually arrived in a spaceship. He had grown up on a farm in the middle of Kansas. Even if Lex believed this, it didn't help to clear up anything. The power had to have come from somewhere. The solution had to be on the Kent farm. Floyd Lawton had come into Smallville as a drifter looking for room and board with barely a dime in his pocket. He'd walked down the dusty dirt roads, going door to door looking for work, until finally he'd happened upon a small house that belonged to a graying old lady. He'd gone down the path and up the steps to the front porch, then knocked with a ready smile on his face. Mrs. Kent? Floyd had asked as she came to the door. Yes? Do I know you? She was in her sixties, maybe even older, with white hair tied up in a loose bun. Her dress was simple and blue. No, ma'am, sorry. The name was on the mailbox. Name's Floyd Lawton. He took off his hat and clutched it to his chest. Sorry to chub you on this fine day, but I've been on the road for a long while, and I'm looking to settle down for a spell of work. If you have something that needs doing, or if you know some neighbors that might need some work, I'd do it just for room and board, whatever's asked of me. Martha Kent gave him a warm smile. Why, you know, I had a live-in farmhand up until just two days ago, Elias Clayton. He was a strong and able man, helped with a few animals I still keep, the garden and the maintenance on the old barn. We made enough to keep ourselves afloat, along with the money brought in by leasing out the land to the Parkers, and I paid him a good wage. Well, Elias had aspirations, you see, but he was a black and so work didn't come too easy, especially not the kind of work that he was keen on doing which was acting. Then, just a week ago, a director of movies came out to Smallville, right out of the blue. He said that he was going to make the great American movie and said that Smallville would make the perfect location for it. Well, now, Elias took the day off to go speak with that director. I thought nothing of it, of course, until Elias came back and told me that he'd been discovered. He said it happens all the time, if you can believe that. So I said to him that he wasn't to leave until he finished putting up the new chicken wire around the coop. I was thinking it might be I'd try taking this year by myself for a change, but if you're looking for work, then boy do I have some. Floyd nodded through all this, a slightly desperate grin on his face like he thought a real drifter would have. Martha mostly seemed happy to have someone to talk to though, and they'd moved the conversation inside. They'd come to an agreement over homemade lemonade that had too much pulp in it for Floyd's liking. 
Later that day, Floyd had picked up his meager belongings from the greenhouse in Smallville, where he'd rented out a room for the night. He had a rifle slung over his shoulder, and two pistols in a wooden box that drew Martha's attention. There's not much use for pistols out here, said Martha with a frown. We have a shotgun, few rifles for dealing with the coyotes and wolves, or for bringing in more meat. They were my father's, said Floyd with a smile. Handcraft and fine quality pieces, and I'm only thankful that I've never had to sell them. My husband Jonathan, may he rest in peace, he abhorred pistols. He was a pacifist and an absolutist, and thought every war was a crime against God's own will. He's lucky he didn't get drafted then. Martha's face became very serious. Oh, my Jonathan was drafted all right. He'd applied to be a conscientious objector. When I say he was a pacifist, I don't mean that he thought it was better not to kill. I mean he believed with every fiber of his being that it was simply something a good person doesn't do, no matter the circumstances. He went to prison for his beliefs. Ma'am, if you don't want me bringing pistols in your home... No, no. There were more than a few things that Jonathan and I didn't see eye to eye on. You don't use those pistols lightly, though. If someone tries to steal from our farm, I'd rather just let them take what they came for. It's not worth killing a man over a pair of chickens. Floyd breathed a silent sigh of relief. He loved his pistols. He liked to use them both at once, feeling them kick in tandem. He'd once cleared out an entire poker den with those two pistols, killing 13 men with 12 bullets and earning him the nickname Deadshot. He was handy with a rifle, too, and had been briefly trained in sharpshooting by the military before a dishonorable discharge had left him perfectly positioned to become an assassin. He was very explicit on that term, and had maimed more than one thug who called him a mere hitman. He'd met men who didn't want to kill before. Hell, most men didn't want to kill. But he'd never met a man who'd prefer jail over being in the army, except perhaps those cowards that only wanted to stay out of the fighting because they were afraid for their own safety. In his opinion, Jonathan Kent was probably just a slacker. But he held his tongue. He settled into a routine at the Kent house. He would listen to Martha Kent yap away during an early morning breakfast, go out and do whatever work needed to be done until lunchtime, take a break during which he composed a letter to his completely fictitious sister, and then keep working on the farm until nearly sunset, when he'd go into town, grab a copy of the Smallville Ledger, and on occasion mail off his letter for the week. Why is there a lock in the storm cellar? asked Floyd. Oh, that old thing. It kept blowing open, so I put a lock on it a while back and somehow forgot the key. I could cut the lock. I wouldn't want to get caught in a tornado without a storm cellar. It's rusted shut anyway, I think, and there's a small basement room we can go to if the storms ever get too bad. I wouldn't worry about it, dear. Floyd had gone back and looked at the doors to the storm cellar more closely. They were made of metal, and when he looked closely at the seams, he could see that the whole thing had been welded shut. It was hard to make out with all the rust, but the storm cellar had been sealed shut as tightly as possible. So far as he could guess, whatever was down there was the entire reason for his being on the Kent farm. He made sure to mention the storm cellar in his letters to his fictitious sister, cloaking the information in long paragraphs about how he was afraid of tornadoes. Hopefully, his employer was smart enough to read between the lines. End Chapter 8 Thank you to the following people. 
Superman and Clark Kent by Nathan Bowman. Lois Lane by Anonymous. Martha Kent by Marie Desjardins. Joseph Green by Brian Zeman. Loretta Green by Vasilia. Special thanks also to Last Call Romance for providing their song Over You to use as the Smallville theme. More of their music can be found at lastcallromanceband.com or on Facebook as Last Call Romance Band. Links are also included in the show description at hpmorpodcast.com. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for Chapter 9.